me excited for the first full week of DFS that we got here. We're recording this on Monday before uh, week one, before the Thursday debut game. I've got a special DFS guest here with me, Peter Overset, to talk about small field tournaments. Before I throw it to him, do want to remind you to use promo code ETE over at establishtherun.com slash subscribe. That'll give you 5% off any of our packages, including our in-season package, which is our DFS package. You'll get access to the projections. You'll get access to Dink and I's Establish the Million show, which is going to really help you out with a lot of the GPP concepts that Peter and I are going to talk about today. So again, use promo code ETE at establishtherun.com slash subscribe to get 5% off. and. Peter, I'm excited for the upcoming DFS season. I want to thank you for making time to come on the show. I know you and I, it's a bit of a grind week one. You're coming off a grueling randomizer draft with Evan Silva. You're pumping out live streams of FFPC drafts every other night. And tomorrow night, we've got our NFFC Ultimate 5K entry draft, which is pretty high stakes. Then you're flying to Vegas. And I'm guessing you either you're you're gonna do tilt space, which we'll talk about uh, in a little bit here, from Vegas, or you'll have flown back. So it's a, it's a pretty busy week for you. Yeah, thankfully, uh, you know, Pat and I we used to always go out to Vegas and we'd stay through the Sunday games. You take the red eye back on Sunday, and I have learned my lesson, and I have far <laughs> too many commitments now on Sunday. So yeah, we're coming back Saturday morning, so I'll be in the saddle, ready to go for for tilt space on Sunday, which uh, I know ETR has started to leak that in their kind of uh, content schedule for the year. But just to uh, you know, put a bow on it, we will be here every Sunday night around 5.36 p.m. Once we get to the kind of witching hour of those uh, late games and Mike, myself, and Joe Holka, along with hopefully some of our ETR friends will be swinging by to tilt and sweat our lineup. So I'm very much looking forward to that again this year. Yeah, we did that last year. We started me, Holka, and Peter with a bankroll of 15K. I'm trying to think what we finished the end of the year at. Um, we banked a 50K GPP early on, um, and we had another second place finish in the juke for like 8K, which let us play in some higher stakes contests in which we banked that 50K. And then it was a little bit tough sliding towards the end of the year. I think we might have ended up around like 50K or so final bankroll. So it was successful. And a lot of what we were doing was small field, single entry, three max type tournaments. And that's what I want to talk to you about today. And I know last year for you seemed like it was a really good year. And you and, and just from talking to you behind the scenes, it kind of felt like you had a little bit of a shift in how you played. So just kind of broadly, if you want to talk about your success last year and you know, kind of what you think fueled that. Yeah, and it's funny too because there's been some uh, tweet conversations going on recently. I think uh, Jordan Cooper Blender had a good one about how, in general, you know, people who I think struggle at DFS or fantasy are focusing too much on trying to get stuff right as opposed to benefiting when others are wrong. And I think last year that was the huge kind of light bulb moment for me. I look back when I was doing my first bankroll challenge a few years ago, just I cringed thinking about how I was thinking about those lineups and plays. And I was specific thinking about very specific outcomes and never about how I could benefit or how I could leverage the fields over confidence. And, and I even went through that in season long league. I know you've talked with Pat a lot on here about how we were just almost completely off Justin Jefferson last year, not because we didn't like Justin Jefferson in season long, but because we loved other players so much and we didn't benefit 
from being generally right because we wanted to be, you know, specifically right on this player. And so I've kind of applied that to DFS too. And I feel like I just have a much more Zen approach. We don't know the field thinks they know. So how can we benefit when the field is wrong and just kind of applying those concepts week after week and kind of letting go of these, like, I have to be right about this situation or this player, I think was a, a very freeing experience for me. Yeah, the nihilism to an extent is very freeing. It, it definitely lets you, like you said, focus on the correct stuff, but it's almost easier to be, I hate to use the word brave in a DFS contest, <laughs> but a, a little bit bolder in the plays that you're making, just kind of understanding the volatility and the uncertainty. And um, before we get into specific concepts for that, do kind of want to define small field tournaments. Whenever I do these podcasts, I always get the follow up, you know, what do you consider small field? For me, I'm trying to play a lot of contest sizes around 200 people. You know, I'll play anything from 30 to like 500 people. I know you played and had success in, I think it was the $100 Spy, and they have a couple of those each week, which is a little bit bigger. So when we're talking small field strategies, I guess what kind of what's the cap on entrance where you you think you know this sort of ceases to to, you know, um, be applicable. Yeah. I mean, I do think it's an important distinction because there, I think sometimes people just assume a single entry or three max tournament would be considered small field. It's small entry, but not necessarily small field. Cause some of those can get very big. I don't know. I guess I would say, cause you don't want to box like everyone out necessarily. I, I would say what maybe under 5,000 would I consider a small field or is that even too big for your Definition. I was thinking maybe a thousand, but okay. maybe a, a thousand, to, but like, I wouldn't consider 5,000 quite large field. Like we're, we're in the gray area, but so I think that's about right. Once you get above 5,000, I think the concepts start to change the way you're going to play starts to change. And there's degrees to all this stuff, you know, and we're going to try and talk through it in a way where hopefully you kind of understand that. Okay, the smaller the field size, like the more this is applicable, the larger the field size, like, you know, maybe a little bit less applicable. And you can kind of use use some common sense, but you talked about like not having to get everything right. And I think that was one of the bigger takeaways for me is in a small field tournament, I'm almost trying to win the low scoring slates, which sounds counterintuitive. You know, when you're entering the million maker or something really large, you have to hit the pure nuts. And obviously some slates will be larger or smaller scoring, but in a small field, I can win the low scoring slates. And what I mean by that is a slate where kind of the chalk just fails sort of as a group. And if you're making smart lineups that aren't overly chalky, you can benefit from that chaos where you actually don't need a perfect lineup. You know, just the fact that the field has made so many mistakes overplaying this chalk that we didn't know was going to fail to your point, but because it did fail and because we built our lineups in a smart way, we're all of a sudden winning slates where we don't even have that great of a lineup. You know, sometimes it's tough because it's part of the business to send out screenshots when you win a tournament or do something, but the replies when I win a tournament sometimes are pretty funny because I don't have the greatest of lineups in there, but they're lineups that are made and crafted you know, very specific to the contest I'm playing in. Yeah, and I think the other thing too is be honest with yourself about what type of player you are. You know, there's a lot of players we see too. Like, um, I, I feel like Wiggins is a good example of someone who plays very close to the optimal in these small fields, but will make just the slightest tweaks uh, to his lineup to get differentiated. 
And in that style, I think it does really lend itself to the super small field stuff under, you know, 200 or 300, because you're basically rolling out a cash lineup with just a few subtle tweaks to make sure you're not duplicated. If you're someone who maybe uh, like Mike and I might want to gal brain a little bit more, you can probably push the size of the tournament knowing that um, you might even be a little over leveraged or over unique in super small stuff where you don't even have to take on that additional risk. So it depends on what kind of player you are and kind of then trying to, I think, reverse engineer the contest to your playing style. Yeah, absolutely. And then thinking, I'm trying to think through like some of the things I felt like I learned a lot last year. And one of them, you know, Pat Crane and I did a good episode on us on this podcast. It's a deep dive episode. I, I tweeted out the link the other day on correlation in DFS. And one of the things I think mistakes people make is like misunderstanding correlation where they do it almost the exact opposite way that you're supposed to do it. You know, the kind of the thought is, oh, I'm playing in the Millie maker. I need like this heavily correlated lineup to get a ton of upside. But in my small field tournament, I just want to play kind of the best plays. I don't need to force that correlation as much. When in reality, it's almost the opposite, where in you're in a small field tournament, you don't need to perfect, don't need to be perfect. You just want to get less things right. And the way to get less things right is to correlate your lineup. You don't need to hit, you know, the 95th percentile outcome on every player across the board. Whereas when you are in these really large field tournaments, you kind of do need to hit that 95th percentile outcome and you can correlate to an extent, but when you start to overly correlate, you do start to reduce your ceiling. So I think that's an interesting dynamic. And I think that's something on our tilt space lineups. We did a pretty good job of like towing that line between making sure we correlated to get less things right. But then you know, there's always going to be exceptions where if you have a certain rushing quarterback or something where we're like open-minded enough to not have I guess these overly rigid rules about it. Yeah, for sure. And I think that that was another thing I learned and and came to appreciate last year playing the super small field stuff of, and again, it, it's simple. We say it all the time about how many things do you have to get right to win the Millie maker versus how many things do you need to get right to win these tournaments? And I know one of our most successful weeks last year, I believe it was the Joe Mixon week. You had identified him as this really low owned play. He went off for 40 points. And then I think we had um, a nice uh, double stack on there. So we essentially got like two things, right? The low owned running back in the game offense where, where that team did well, that's it. That's all we needed to take that down. And, and you can get away with that in the small field stuff. Now, if we had thrown that lineup in the Millie, which I think we did, it, you know, it probably cashed, but it didn't, you know, make any waves because that lineup was engineered to win the small field stuff. So I think it all depends on your approach. You know, if, if you're trying to win a million dollars, like have fun hitting the the parlay and you don't want to, you know, super stack the Minnesota Vikings if you're trying to uh to do that. So again, it all goes back to the the contest you're playing and kind of your goals. But I, I've been thinking about that a lot lately too of just eliminating the amount of things we we have to get right and you know doing that too with the positions where there's already a ton of variance you know we've seen so much success punting at tight end because you really are just having to get lucky and run good on touchdown variance so why not use things in your favor go cheap correlate it with the game or the quarterback you're already using and then move on to to other more difficult decisions yeah and it's funny you mentioned mentioned the mix in combination with you know, a double stack. I had a really good week two last year where you know, Devontae Adams was going to be chalked. Derrick Henry was going to be chalked. I played Aaron Jones 
got lucky that I got the run out I wanted where he had a massive game. I think Devontae Adams was a little bit banged up in that game. Derrick Henry failed. I picked up so many points on the field. And then I had a really high ceiling stack in Diggs and Josh Allen go off. And again, it was two things right, basically. Made my whole lineup. I had a couple of disaster plays in my lineup that I survived. In fact, when we won our 50K grand prize in the $1,500 single entry, we took a chalk zero at tight end with Adam Troutman last yeah. year. So like that goes to show you that if you're building teams the right way, you do not have to be perfect. We really did survive you know, some, some, some bad outcomes in, in certain parts of our lineup. So uh, I re- and, and that makes me think of when people ask me how I first start my lineup, in general, there's two things I'm looking at. The first is like, what's my biggest leverage spot of the week? You know, kind of want to fit that in, which maybe, you know, the week you're talking about was, was Joe Mixon. Okay. I've got a really good leverage spot already. Now what's, where do I, uh, you know, I'm going to build around that understanding. I've got this low uh, exposure play in Joe Mixon. How do I construct a high upside lineup around that and really optimize that if Joe Mixon hits, I'm in a good spot. And that's, well, let's just find a really high ceiling double stack. It doesn't have to be a crazy contrarian, you know, Jets Panthers stack or something. I think our week was, you know, we, we stacked the Cowboys game like every week in some capacity because they were just playing these shootouts. So that's sort of how I'm building my lineups. Like find those one or two leverage spots you really like, put them in your lineup, find, you know, your ceiling. And I think there's a real big balance too between ceiling and ownership to an extent where if I'm going to play, you know, chalky players, if I'm going to play chalky stacks. I really want the high end ceiling to be there and I'm okay doing that. And you do have to accept that. I think some of our more successful weeks were where I, sometimes I'm a little bit stubborn where I really want to be almost too contrarian to an extent, but easing off of that and playing like the really high upside game stacks and then being able to find like some contrarian pivots elsewhere seemed to be like the weeks that I, I was most successful and our tilt space teams were most successful last week. Yeah, and I think that's, you know, as we shift from best ball mode to DFS mode, you know, I think one kind of macro theme is that based on the first decisions you make, so in a best ball draft, those are your first three or four picks, all of your other decisions after that have to be within the context of those earlier picks. Like you were trying to build out a reality that's already established a base foundation by those early picks. What's fun about DFS is you can start anywhere. Like you said, you can figure out what's your favorite leverage point on the slate. You're not at the mercy of whoever falls to me with my first round pick. There's probably like a a finite number of decisions that you can make there. It's kind of dictated for you. Whereas with DFS, if you love the contrarian running back pivot, you can start with that. But then from that point on, you have to make very logical decisions. And say we do have the backup running back who's priced at 4,800, who's going to get the three down work and it's just an absolute smash that could just be a spot you start your lineup with like I am not fading this I think this is too good of a spot regardless of the ownership and now because of that well I can also play the stacky game stack right because I've already made a decision where I'm going to eat chalk here and so I just like that idea of you can start with whatever you want pick your favorite play your favorite pivot your favorite stack but then the decisions after that have to be in accordance with what you've already done yeah, I 100% agree with that. And when we looked at 
for Adam Levitan's Million Maker article that he writes each year, kind of the path to win. Now, this is large field, but I think it applies to small field too. The mistakes the field make a lot of the time, even though we suggest kind of a barbell approach, which is you know mixing some chalk and low low owned guys, the the field goes too far in each direction sometimes, where they're overly chalky or they're overly contrarian, and you do kind of find a have have to find that sweet spot in the middle where you have a good mix. I know for me, one of the difficulties I have is I constantly want to chase the leverage where I'm like, well, this guy's better leverage than this guy at running back. And then at wide receiver, I'm like, well, I'm only sacrificing, you know, one point of projection to get a guy that the field's going to roster at a way lower rate. You know, I'm going to make that decision. I make it down the line. And I think if you had to choose which error to make, it's almost better to have more leverage than less leverage because Again, there's just chaos that can rain on slates and you can benefit in a lot of different ways, even if you have a couple of dead spots. But ultimately, we're trying to find that sweet spot in the middle. So I know for me, like that's what I struggle with the most is not continuing to increase my leverage all the way throughout my lineups. Like I'm addicted to getting more and more leverage, especially when the projections are somewhat close. And I think that's a good point to consider because I know a lot of times people want to have, uh, you know, what is my total, you know, cumulative ownership I should have in this lineup or what's the the product ownership I should be willing to hit. I think those can be good kind of general rules of thumb to make sure you're not, you know, spitting out a cash lineup, but not all of those percentages are going to be created equal. And when you say leverage too, I think that's where the context of a slate comes into play so much. And if everyone's playing Dalvin cook, you know, just pivoting off of him to a, another, you know, type of play. Sure. You might get the ownership, you know, whatever discount that you're looking for. But on the other hand, you might not be getting the leverage. You might, if you go heavy on the passing game. And so using smart leverage, I guess I would say too, where not only is your overall, you know, percentage going to be lower, but when you are right, you're going to benefit in a bigger way. It's kind of like the the whole concept of anti-fragility. It's like not only are you going to be right if they're wrong, but your payoff is going to be so much bigger than when the field is right. And too, you mentioned that if Dalvin Cook's really expensive, one of the things that you know we like to do in Billy lineups is just change the structure of the build completely. You know That will really force you to go contrarian because the chalky piece is kind of you know, it's a flow chart. It kind of goes together. Oh, you play the expense of Delvin Cook. So here's your, you know, cheap wide receiver of the week and your cheap tight end of the week to make that work. Whereas all of a sudden you're like, you know what? I'm just not going to, not only am I not going to play Delvin Cook, I'm not going to play Alvin Kamara either. You know, I'm going to drop down and play Joe Mixon or, or whoever it might be and just switch that build completely. And what that allows you to do and forces you to do is you're contrarian in your other spots just because the salary that you're working with for the other spots isn't lining up with what the field salary is working with. And that's a little bit more freeing because you can feel better about some of the plays you're making. And it's almost a little bit easier to just take the best plays at that point. You almost don't have to overthink it because they're just naturally going to have a little bit less field ownership because they don't fit that build. So you, you almost don't even have to go too far down you know, kind of your list of guys, you can kind of take the, the best values at that point. And you end up really not sacrificing a ton of projection after that initial decision, you know, from that, just kind of pretend the expensive running backs don't exist, block them off your list. And you're almost building an optimal lineup from there. 
Yeah. And, uh, you know, that whole idea of when we're trying to like flip the build and stuff, a lot of that does rely on game theory and understanding the field. And one of the things I think with small field that makes that so tricky is because we don't have the law of large numbers that we do in the Millie Maker, where we know that our projected you know ownership is going to be pretty close to what uh, the field is going to do, just because we can. There's hundreds of thousands of entries in the small field. Like just one little news blurb or one influencer, dare I say, an Adam Levitan with a tweet can shift. <laughs> the entire kind of exposures in one contest. And that was kind of both a fun and terrifying game for us to try to crack last year. If we're in a contest with only 200 people, that stuff can literally change within five minutes on what the field is going to do. So I think it goes back to also really understanding your contest and and knowing how they're going to play it. And we've had lots of things where it's like, Oh, early in the week, Dallas Cowboys, Dak double stack. I mean, this is so obvious. How do you not play CeeDee Lamb at 5,400 year? And then by the end of the week, everyone's galaxy brained themselves off of it. And it's like, wait, wasn't our initial hunch? Is it this still the play? And so I think in the small field, those kind of dynamics are are way more at play than they would be in the Millie Maker. Yeah. So I think it's important too to kind of try and play similar contests so you can get a good feel for that. Like you definitely need a feel for what, the field is going to do. Obviously it's going to be harder, the larger the tournament that you're in, but having a good feel is really important and paying attention and using some critical thinking through Sunday morning. We've definitely had more than one week where our expectations for what the field was going to do change Sunday morning. And we changed based on that. And it's hard because it's hard to not attach yourself to the actual fantasy point result, but we're really looking at the process. So if we go from a Kansas City stack to a Dallas stack Sunday morning, we have to block out almost from a process standpoint when we evaluate what the Kansas City stack actually scored, what the Dallas stack actually scored. What we're trying to do there is just guess, okay, the field sentiment's moving in this direction and we can have a lot more leverage and then kind of identifying once we actually see the exposures of the field, if we were right or not. Yeah, and I, I think too it's... uh it's a hard thing because when you really think about it in some, in some of these sports like showdown or, you know, some of the smaller field, like we even saw it in the Thunderdome, you know, people rolling out the exact same lineup. And that, and that is the absolute last thing you want to be doing is you do not want to be duplicated. Now with NFL, because we have nine spots, it does become pretty hard to get duplicated. And I know I was listening to you guys talk on your DFS series on the uh, main Establish the Run podcast feed about how the math does really bear out that you don't necessarily want to be leaving a ton of salary on the table uh, because it's still very unlikely that you're going to be duplicated in those scenarios. So I think that's the other thing too of how to think through this of like, well, why wouldn't I have to, or why can't I play chalk if I know I'm not going to be duplicated? But I think it goes back to that thing if you're sharing the general types of players that the field is, you now are doing a 2v2 or a 3v3 against the whole field. And you do essentially have to be perfect. Again, not only do you collectively as the field have to be perfect, but you and your little micro pivots within that do too. And I think that goes back to your point of how we kind of tend to even be over leveraged because we're like, wouldn't it be so much easier to beat the field if their entire sentiments or kind of hunches are just completely wrong as opposed to trying to match them and be unique within that. 
Yeah, it's like a type one error, type two error thing. You know, if we're going to make an error, we'd definitely rather be over leveraged. And I do get that from people who are like, well, if I just play, play this fourth chalk guy, people aren't going to play these four chalk guys together. Then my, my lineup's going to be unique. And it is about so much more than just being unique. It's about the total leverage that you're creating on the field and the amount of outs you have. You know, you, you have to basically get those four chalk guys. Like, let's say you're playing four chalk guys and the field is normally playing three together. You basically have to hit on all four of those chalk guys. You get a single one wrong, somebody with some combination of three is going to beat you. Whereas if you do it the other way, one or two of those guys fails and you've picked up huge leverage on the field and there's just more outs. You know, it's the number of outs you have increases. But you mentioned how a news blurb can, you know, flip things and flip sentiment. One funny sort of run out we had last year, the first week CMC was back from injury, we really wanted to play him, you know, kind of, and the, the idea, which was correct is these players, whether it's someone coming back from injury or maybe entering this DFS season, maybe it's a rookie or a sophomore in expanded role. It is better in GPP to try and be a week early and be wrong than it is to wait a week. If you have, you know, a sentiment, because if you wait a week and everyone sees it, that player is chalked the next week. There's no benefit whatsoever. So, of course, we want to play CMC because of this reasoning. We see uh, the Rappaport tweet that he's going to be limited or whatever. And even though we knew it was coming, we were like, all right, we can't pay the salaries too much. We can't pay him if he's going to be limited. Of course, CMC scores like 30 plus points against the Chiefs. A couple weeks later, we made a pact when Austin Eckler was returning. We're going to ignore the Rappaport tweet. And like clockwork, Sunday morning, we get the Rappaport. Austin Eckler is going to be eased in tweet. We held strong. We held firm, though, Peter, and we played him. I think he scored like 24 DraftKings points at 6K with, you know, and got stuffed at the one-yard line like twice. Like didn't score a touchdown. It almost worked. But um, the point is, it is, you know, it is good to be early. You know, don't – if you have a hunch on something, in cash games, obviously you want to see it before you play it because – the risk reward ratio is different, but in, in GPPs, it is so much more important to be early and be right once in a while early than it is to be right consistently after the fact, um, just because of the, the dynamics of the payout structures and whatnot. Yeah. And I always remember I, I talked to Bales on one of my GPP strategy shows last year and just one really simple uh, piece of advice he gave is like, we're trying to win the slates, the lowest scoring slates, because that means the field is wrong. When the chalk hits, that's when we see the massive point totals. And it's going to be really hard because everyone's putting up a ton of points. And then you need that one-off guy who helps separate you. No, we want the ones where everyone bombs. And I think when you kind of reorient thinking about that, because when you're trying to score a lot of points, you're like, I got to get everything right. I got to get the wide receiver who goes off for the two touchdowns here and blah, blah, blah. And it's like, no, no, no. It's so much more freeing if if you are playing the field as opposed to trying to get everything individually right. And even processing those news blurbs, right? Like there's no information edge. Everyone's reading the same rap report tweet, the same Schefter tweets. Everyone has it. It's not that the information is giving you the edge. It's how you think the opponents are going to apply that information. It doesn't really matter if we think Eckler is going to be fine in that spot. It's what we think our opponents think. And that's where we get into this out leveling ourselves. But I do think if you think about it, like an apples to apples game, I'm not going to play like my funniest card or my cards against humanity. No, I'm going to try to play the card. I think the field is playing and that's how I'm going to win. 
I love that. The apples to apples comp. Yeah. Uh, one other thing I want to talk about, like late swap, I think is pretty important and even more important, the smaller the field size gets because you have, it's easier to tell what your opponents are doing. You have a little bit more information. And because of this whole dynamic of amount of things we need to get right versus amount of chalk we can play, late swap sometimes gives you some outs to almost even play chalkier lineups and benefit if it goes a certain way. And, you know, I had a week last year where I, and I think we did well too. I did well individually and we did well in the tilt space, but it was the week the Bills Cardinals were playing an afternoon four o'clock game. And it was clearly the highest upside game stack of the week. And a lot of weeks I might've brained myself off it. Again, I think with the stack specifically, I'm coming around to the ceiling is more important than the actual leverage. And then kind of get your leverage with your one-offs. Like if I had to choose one build, but regardless, sometimes I brain myself off the chalky stack, but because it was an afternoon game, I was able to just take a couple contrarian plays early. And what ended up happening was like three chalk running backs fouled. Like it was crazy. And I think I had like Antonio Gibson or something did really well. And at that point, it was super clear that I had this leverage on the field and I could play this really expensive, uh, really chalky, but high upside game stack. And, uh, you know, we both cashed barely highly that week as a result of that. So you're definitely using late swap, not only to organize your lineups to give you those that flexibility on chalk versus contrarian, but then if you if you get the opposite outcome that I had, which is let's say the chalk went off early and you know Antonio Gibson didn't do that well, you still have an out late, right? You can get off that chalky Bills Arizona game, go to another game, and you're drawing thin at that point, but you're still drawing live, which is important. And a lot of what we're talking about, honestly, it's like how do we maximize the number of outs that we have? And how do we maximize the probability that we actually get like a really meaningful winning outcome when one of those outs hits? Yeah. And it, uh, I mean, we, I'm sure we've all said this a lot. Uh, but one of the reasons I love playing the smaller fields and doing single entry three max is because it really does allow you to dial in and take advantage of that information edge and the late swap. Like to use another analogy, it's like we all get dealt our, you know, Texas Hold'em hands and we're all sitting here looking our cards pre-flop, you know, bet and check raising setting this. But then like the late swap equivalent is the flop is the 1 p.m. games. Like we now have so much more information about where we stand. How does our hand look? What could our potential opponents have? They've been betting, you know, we now have all this information. We can make even better decisions than we could pre-flop. And it's like, we have to take advantage of this information thing. And I, I know it, even as someone who knows I should do it, I still get lazy and be like, yeah, I'll just let it ride or whatever. But it, to really force yourself to go back in, and I do think just as an exercise, it helps to have those 2v2 set up. It helps to know, like, I think we did it a lot last year where we would make a stand on the chalk running back, you know, early, knowing that that could dictate what we could do in our lineup, whether you're fading it or playing it. And then if your chalk guy fails, well, man, we need to get really aggressive with our pivots because we're behind the whole field right now. So I think just using that information to your advantage and thinking of your contest and your lineup as like a, a full day long thing that you're building this lineup. It's not once lock submits, that's when you're done. It's like, this is a living, breathing thing that you can and should probably be tweaking. 
Yeah, absolutely. And another concept, you know, we've mentioned ceiling on this show quite a bit. And that is the one thing that's like, I guess a little less game theory. It's a little bit more while we want to get away from micro player takes too far to an extent, just because in general, the field's overconfident in those and our ability to do those is not as strong as we think. I do like to think through the ceiling of the players, the ceiling of the stacks, and we've added ceiling projections to the ETR DFS projections this year. So if you have an in-season package, you'll get access to those. But I do think, you know, trying to think through ceiling is important. Like what are the ways a player has like a really, really meaningful and impactful week or similarly with a stack? Because sometimes the value on guys might look good, but then like how that actually translates to helping you win a tournament isn't huge. And also how you're playing your game theory matters. So there's been a few weeks where there's, you know, chalk 3K wide receivers because they're going to play and they're guys that project as massive values because they project to score 11 to 12 points. Hmm. But that's not like making or breaking you in a tournament. And the mistake people make is like one feeling they have to play these players who they could go four X and you're fine. Like if the three K player who's being played because he's has a good chance of scoring 12 points. If that good chance comes through and he scores 12 points, I'm happy as a player who didn't have them. Like that's fine. You can take your 12 points at three K. I'm not saying like, obviously I hope the guy completely fails. If I'm fading him, I'm not saying, you know, 12 points is terrible, but it's not moving the needle a ton. So I think the mistake people make is, one, they, they feel like they really have to play these guys. There's no way around them when really there, if you think critically, there are a lot of routes to winning without that player, even if they do well. And then similarly, if they're fading them, they want to just pivot. Oh, I'll just take this 3K wide receiver and hope he scores 12 points. And it's like, well, what are you, what are you going to pick up on the field if that 3K receiver scores 12 points and the other one scores eight? So right. like, like really being cognizant of, of the ceiling of your players. And again, this comes back to not having to be perfect because if you're in a small field tournament and you get just a couple of really high end ceiling outcomes from your lineup and the right leverage spots, like that could completely make your week. It's not about everyone in your lineup getting to value. Yeah. And it's the same way when we look back on our season long rosters, it's that you don't win these leagues because you hit every single pick. I mean, maybe in these large field, you know, best ball tournaments or, or, you know, large field tournaments, but in general, it's like you had one or two big hits that you nailed the Justin Jefferson, you nailed the Logan Thomas late and it completely won your year for you because of kind of the cost adjusted, you know, price you got them at. And the same thing with these lineups. And that's why the small field is so fun. If you're right about one thing in a massive way, you know, we used our Joe Mixon example, he's 4% rostered. And then we end up getting a 40 point week out of him. That's all we needed. Everything else was almost inconsequential to just getting that one massive hit. So I I like thinking about it through that lens of like, I'm not trying to, you know, hit singles uh, on all of these things. I'm trying to hit the one home run and everything else will work itself out. Absolutely. Anything else you have uh, as far as small field tournament tips for people? Yeah, I I think just, um, you know, knowing, like we said, the kind of play that you're going to see in that, in that type of contest uh, and taking advantage of it. And I think the smaller the field gets, the more you will see people putting in their cash lineup or slight variations of your cash lineup. And I think there's a a lot of ways you can take advantage of that. If you can set yourself free and know like there are going to be lots of weeks when I'm wrong, lots of weeks when the chalk hits and I'm just going to have to eat it. But when I'm right, I'm going to be right in a really big way. 
All right. Thanks so much for joining me on the Small Field Podcast. Peter, the people can follow you at Peter Overset on Twitter. Anything else? You, you, you're doing so much now. Uh, anything else in particular you want to let the people know about? Yeah, I'm, I'm just excited to settle into uh, my rhythm here for DFS stuff. So I'm going to be doing on Monday mornings on my channel, re, uh, reviewing lineups. I'm going to be doing little showdown crams on Monday and Thursday nights. Fridays, I am going to be doing my GPP strategy show. That was my favorite show to do last year. I had you and Dink on and all kinds of smart people from throughout the industry to talk more like this, more kind of macro game theory concepts and and save all the play the best plays for, for other shows. And then I'm also going to add a show this year, a Sunday morning show, kind of looking at those things we were just discussing. Who's what? Where are the steam coming from? Who are the guys that are now going to be more popular? How do we take advantage of that? So that and, uh, of course, uh, running back tilt space, which will be here on the ETR uh, YouTube channel. Super, super excited to get that going. Yeah, tilt space. I believe it's going to be at 6 p.m. Eastern time on Sunday night. So we'll be basically tilt slash sweating the second half of the afternoon games, taking us to the conclusion of that main slate DFS. I can't believe there was a time where I was outraged that they removed the Monday night game from DFS. <laughs> and then I was outraged they removed the Sunday night game. And now I just can't imagine those games being a part of the slate. So yeah, make sure to check us out again as established the Agile listeners. Use that special promo code for you 5% off if you use promo code ETE of any premium package for established to run. Make sure you get that in-season package. Thanks for tuning in, everybody. We'll see you next week. Thank you.